Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Big stories. Big guests. The Big Picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, why math really is for everyone. A new book explains why we need a total rethink when it comes to math. Also, calls from Jewish and Iranian groups in Canada for our government to take a harder line with the Iranian government. A conversation about the future of women's hockey and whether a viable professional league is in the cards. Plus, why the Tim Hortons brand has taken such a hit in Canada in recent years and how they can turn it around. There's been a lot of talk lately when it comes to uh, curriculum about math and the teaching of math and math scores and whether those scores are trending in the right direction and whether we're equipping children with the math skills to go out in the world and succeed. Well, our next guest wants to kind of change the conversation around math, get us thinking a little differently about math, both in terms of the importance of math and just how fundamental it is in our society, but also the idea that math is hard or that some kids are just naturally going to do better in math than others. He believes that all kids can succeed and that all kids should be able to succeed in math. John Mighton is a mathematician. He is the founder of Jump Math. He is also an award-winning author and playwright. You read more at jumpmath.org, but his new book is called All Things Being Equal, Why Math is the Key to a Better World. John Mighton joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Mighton, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of conversation, uh, it seems, uh, around math and the teaching of math and how kids are doing in math and all kinds of consternation around that. It seems to me that, that you know, the, this book is kind of coming at this in two ways. I mean, on one hand, it's about why math is important, but it's also helping us kind of rethink uh, our approach to math and the idea that, that math is, is hard. Yeah, I, I struggled in math when I was younger and didn't go into mathematics until I was about 32. So I know from my own experience that if you have the right approach, you can, you can learn uh, math or virtually any subject. It's interesting because when you you know when you hear you know about kids who are you know working with tutors, kids who are having trouble with certain subjects, I mean it seems to largely be math, right? There's this perception that math is is tough and and kids are going to struggle with math. Yeah, that's that's right. And interestingly, for young kids, math is the strongest predictor of success at school, and it's so important um, for many. You know, financially for people, for the kind of uh, job opportunities they have. And um, in Jump Math, the program, the charity I started, we've seen a lot of evidence that actually math may be the easiest subject for people to learn. Um, and there's also a lot of evidence from cognitive science that suggests that. Um, and so I think this is a subject where we could really change kids' attitudes about themselves. We could change um, their ability to focus, to learn, to stay on task through mathematics, which people think of as the hardest subject. Right. Well, let's talk about your own story, because as you say, I mean, you, you, you were like a lot of kids coming up uh, through the, the um, education system. You struggled with math, and yet here you are today. I mean, you've been, uh, for a couple of decades now, you've been uh, working with kids. You're a mathematician, uh, an award-winning uh, founder of Jump Math. So what, what was the turning point for you? Well, um, in my late 20s as a playwright, I was, I was looking for another source of income. I didn't really start supporting myself until I was in my 30s, and um, I started tutoring lower levels. And one of my first students was in grade six in a remedial class, and his mom was told he could never learn math. And last year we went out to celebrate the fact that he's now a fully tenured math professor. So working with these kids, I, um, I began to think that 
that maybe there's way more potential in these children than we're seeing. And I eventually founded a charity, Jump Math, um, and we're now working with teachers and in classrooms. In fact, we've, we've got a partnership with the University of Calgary. We've been running research uh, for the past five years and shown that with the right support, kids can make huge progress in problem solving and, and uh, gaining a deep conceptual understanding of, of math. So now Jump Math is, is working with teachers and school districts. It's interesting because there, there has been an attitude for a long time, and you talk about it in the book, that, that either kids have it or they don't. Uh, there are going to be some kids mm. who are good at math and others who aren't, and, and that's just the way it is. Uh, how did we fall into that way of thinking? Uh, well, I don't know. We have, we're pretty ignorant about our abilities as a, as a species. You know, we see people who can't do something and think it's something innate or genetic. Yeah. And I think sometimes in math, you know, if you fall behind, it's sometimes hard to catch up, maybe harder in other subjects. Um, and so the word gets passed on, you know, through parents, through, through um, other students, that math is, is really hard. And we've, we've done studies that show that you can really close the gap in math very, very quickly. You know, I once taught, taught a grade six class where the, you know, about 30% of the kids were well below grade level. It was a problem-solving lesson on perimeter, and by the end of the lesson, they were all working on the same problems, same degree of enthusiasm. If that had been reading or another subject, there's no way I could have caught them up that quickly. Right. But in math, there's only a, a, usually only a few concepts or skills that you have to assess and, and build in the students for them to all participate together. I mean, is, is, is this then at, at some level an indictment of our educational system and, and how we teach math? Well, I think it's certainly not an indictment of teachers because we found that teachers are, you know, if they're they're given access to the research in cognitive science and allowed to use methods of teaching that are well supported by research, um, teachers the teachers want to help their students. Uh, they they um, have a great capacity for learning and trying new things, and so I think we just have to open up the system to more to more evidence based practice. I mean, Jump Math participated in a randomized controlled trial where in the second year of the study in grade three, um, students in jump classes made significantly more progress in problem solving. And it's a real risk to, you know, put your program into a, a study like that. It's, it, it, you know, it's a very large, rigorous study. And that's just one piece of evidence that if you guide kids more, and that doesn't mean spoon-feeding them or not having them think, mm -hmm. but if you guide their learning more and you give them more practice and assessment and you're constantly giving them feedback and keeping them in a zone where they can struggle productively and where they can learn efficiently, um, if you keep them in that zone, the evidence suggests that, that kids can, you know, the vast majority of kids can be quite good at math. But I think we need to empower teachers with methods of teaching that, that don't cause cognitive overload, that don't overwhelm kids, that allow them to make discoveries and investigate the math, but in more manageable chunks that, that they can handle. So, I, I, you know, we don't want to go back to rote learning or to just drill, drilling kids. Uh, we call the method of jump structured inquiry. You can have kids always on the edge of their seat making discoveries, seeing connections, um, but but you need to provide them the support to, to, that, that they can feel comfortable, you know, taking risks and answering questions. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because certainly here in Alberta, there's been a debate around math curriculum and where we've seen slippage in, in math scores. And it kind of comes down to an either or that, you know, it's this new math or discovery math versus the, the old rote way of teaching, the memorizing algorithms. I mean, is, is it an either or kind of conversation or does that that debate just kind of miss the point altogether? I think it kind of misses the point a little bit because um, you, you know, you, you you want kids to understand the math deeply, and certainly basic skills and knowledge are important. But you also want them to be engaged and to be figuring things out for themselves. And the the question isn't really back to basics or discovery or whatever people call it or reform math. The question is, are you keeping them in a zone? Are you structuring their learning so that they can make the next discovery themselves, so they can make a connection or see, see a connection? Are you unraveling the concepts in a way that they can, um, you know, weave them back together effectively? Yes. And the other thing is, you know, if you've got hierarchies in the classroom, kids, as early as kindergarten, kids start deciding who's smart and who isn't. Mm -hmm. and, uh, 
And once they decide they're not in the talented group, their brains just don't work. They don't engage as much. They don't work. They don't pay attention. Uh, sometimes they develop anxieties. So you also have to be looking at the psychological effect of what you're doing. If you're keeping everyone in a zone where they can master things, where they can have success, um, where they can make these connections themselves, then you get this incredible group energy in the classroom. Like as a playwright, I I would call it an audience effect. We never feel anything more intensely than we feel something together. And when kids are taught in a way that create hierarchies, that's also not efficient for learning uh, because it causes many kids to give up. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, that, that speaks to why this is important. I mean, it, you know, it's about the education system as a whole and, and ensuring kids that, uh, you know, they're getting something out of this, this school experience. But, I mean, in terms of math itself, right, there's a tendency, I think, that kids fall into, and maybe adults fall into this too, that, you know, are you really going to need this uh, in, in your day-to-day life? Or are you really going to do fractions or long division once you're, you're out, of, uh, out of school? But, you know, and you make a compelling case in the book for why math is so fundamentally important. Yeah, it's it's um, every day we hear statistics or political arguments or economic arguments that involve numbers, including mm-hmm. fractions and, and percents and ratios. So to you know to be informed citizens, we have to be able to make sense of those arguments. And then also, you know, more and more careers depend on having some kind of basic math. But I think there are deeper losses from not from not having a numerate population. You know, kids are born with a sense of wonder and curiosity where they'll investigate or explore anything, and they gradually lose that through failure. And so so that's a huge loss. Um, Kids are born problem solvers, and they lose that capacity. They never want to see a problem again as long as they live. So I think it's it's really... uh, there are clear economic losses to our society, but there are deeper losses, I would say spiritually almost, that I think, you know, everyone should have a right to develop their full intellectual potential and to exercise every part of their brain. And I, I've seen kids literally cheer for math or to beg to stay for recess for math, which people wouldn't believe. Um, when they're, you know, we all love to master things, to conquer challenges, to show off in front of our peers. And when kids are allowed to do that in math, you get this just effect, infectious enthusiasm about the subject. And that spills over into other subjects. We've seen changes in reading in other subjects. Um, because kids learn to be confident, to focus, to stay on task, to see patterns and connections. They learn to construct arguments, um, to see to see holes in arguments. These are all skills that transfer into any any subject. Is it at some level then, and maybe this is part of the you know, the case you're making here? Is is it a an equality issue at some level? Yeah, it's. Um, I argue in the book that. We've had trouble creating more equitable societies and more sustainable economies, um, I think, because we've overlooked one of the deepest root causes, which I call intellectual poverty. You know, the research suggests that kids are born with the ability to learn virtually anything. But even in private schools, you see huge differences between kids in math by grade five. We did one study in a private school where there's a a three-grade level difference between kids as early as grade five, and a year later the average mark was in the 98th percentile on these standardized tests and the lowest in the 95th. We were able to completely close the gap within one year. A year later, all these kids wrote the Pythagoras math competition and all but three got awards of distinction. So there's no other subject where you can close the gap so quickly. But intellectual poverty cuts across all social classes. You can can find private schools where there's a three-grade level difference between people as early as grade five. So where do we begin when it comes to to closing that gap? Well, I I think the first thing is that um, school districts, I think, have to start testing different methods of teaching math and comparing the results. And really not just asking teachers to do one thing across whole districts, but allowing teachers to test things, innovate, and share the results. And then I think the system will automatically improve because teachers are very good at, at um, seizing innovations that work and making them work if, if you give teachers the power to do that. I mean, I, I think there's a perception, too, that the system used to work, but it no longer does. But is this, is this necessarily a, a new problem or a new phenomenon? No, I think things have been about the same for a long time. Uh, I, I don't think the system ever worked. Uh, 
there was always this gap between the, the top students and the bottom, a very wide gap between the top and bottom students. People have always, the vast majority have been convinced that they can't do math. Um, so I, I, it's, it's, I think we need a radically different approach that starts with the idea that every child, according to the research in cognitive science, should be able to learn math. And if they're not, virtually every child, and if they're not, then we have to start asking why and trying different methods that have some evidence. And, and as I said, empowering teachers to do that kind of action research, that, that would change the system very quickly. Because the, the thing that's changed is there's now in cognitive science several decades worth of research on how we learn best. Um, so, for instance, if you want to learn to play the game, the game of chess, which is a, you know, involves a lot of problem-solving skills, and deep conceptual understanding. The best way to learn chess, it turns out, isn't just play the game over and over again. That's a highly inefficient way to learn. It's better to start with mini games with a few pieces that draw your attention to strong positions or to patterns. Um, and by playing those games, you develop these deep mental representations where you can just look at a position and say, oh, that's, that's a bad position. I'm not even going to waste my time thinking about it. So if you learn through what's called deliberate practice or sort of structured practice, and that, that's not rote learning, it's deeply conceptual, um, then you learn most efficiently and gradually you can make those mini games more and more complex until you play the full game of chess. And so it's the same in math. If you want to get to deep, rich problems, it's not necessarily a good thing to start with those. You start with more constrained problems, simpler problems, um, develop deep knowledge and, and these mental representations on these simpler problems and work your way up to the more complex problems. Well, much more at jumpmath.org. And we'll let folks in Calgary know there's an event coming up uh, later this week on Thursday, an introduction to Jump Math, kindergarten to grade two, happening in Calgary. Uh, more information at jumpmath.org. And, of course, the book, All Things Being Equal, Why Math is the Key to a Better World. John Mighton, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you so much. That is John Mighton, a mathematician, founder of Jump Math, and author of the book, All Things Being Equal, Why Math is the Key to a Better World. Two TSB air accident investigators left Canada on Friday evening and over the weekend met up with members of the Canadian consular team in Turkey. They have since obtained visas to travel to Iran and departed earlier today for Tehran, along with members of Canada's consular team. So after the, uh, the latest from Canada's Transportation Safety Board regarding the downing of this Ukrainian uh, Airlines flight last week, the death, of course, of many Canadians on board that flight. Kathy Fox is the head of the TSB uh, speaking at a news conference today. So we've got investigators on their way to Tehran to take part in the probe of last week's downing of this flight. They say so far, Iranian investigators are, are cooperating. And of course, over the weekend, I guess late Friday, our time, Iran came out and acknowledged that it was an Iranian missile that took down this flight, but claiming that the flight had gone off course and that it triggered that response, which is, I suppose, still at this point, a a somewhat questionable explanation from the Iranians. But at least they're acknowledging that it was a missile fired by them that took down this aircraft. There is still a need, obviously, to further get to the bottom of all of this. And hopefully Canadian officials and other international investigators will be able to do so. But of course, this puts in the spotlight this whole situation, our relationship with Iran and the need uh, for a, a firmer position when it comes to Iran. I think certainly uh, not just the past week, but the past several weeks uh, have reinforced uh, the need to rethink how we deal with the Iranians. Now, when it comes to the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, we, we are kind of halfway there. Like with the Americans, Canada has the Quds Force, the armed wing of the IRGC, listed as a terrorist organization. Now, of course, Qasem Soleimani uh, was the head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The IRGC. But that is not recognized as a terrorist organization by the government of Canada. It is by the government of the United States. 
Uh, some Jewish and Iranian groups in Canada calling on the federal government to take that extra step and to recognize the IRGC for what it is today. A news conference in the nation's capital today. The Council of Iranian Canadians, the Justice 88 campaign, and B'nai B'rath Canada urged the government uh, to list the IRGC as a terrorist organization. So why is it important that we do so? Joining us to talk more about this is Michael Mostyn. He is uh, Chief Executive Officer of B'nai B'rath Canada. B'nai is the website. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Rob. Well, let's talk about, you know, in terms of the context of, of what's going on internationally right now and the whole situation with the with the flight. Is, is there a need to be cautious in any sense here, Michael, because if we're trying to work with the Iranians, do we on the one hand risk, um, you know, d- damaging whatever cooperation might be there if, if we do revisit this issue? Uh, so I know that point is being made by some. I disagree. Uh, the truth is the IRGC, the entirety of the IRGC, should have been listed by our Canadian government um, quite some time ago. There was a motion a bipartisan motion that was passed 248 votes in favor. So all the Liberals and all the Conservatives in the House of Commons voted in favor of listing the entire IRGC as a terrorist group. And yet 19 months later, it still hasn't been listed. So whereas there's never perfect timing for the listing of the terrorist group, I would note that that missile that shot down the Ukrainian Flight 752 was not just an Iranian missile, but it was an IRGC missile. So the time is now, and the question is, do we stand with an oppressive regime in Canada uh, that brutally oppresses its own people and finances uh, terrorism through its proxy organizations throughout the Middle East and throughout the world, or do we stand with the protesters and do we stand for human rights? And, um, and that's where I believe Canadians stand with human rights. The IRGC has to be listed as a terrorist group. Right, well, let's talk about why that, that, that matters, uh, because I, I do agree that there is certainly a case to be made for this. Now, Canada does have the Quds Force listed as, as a, terror, a terrorist organization. So explain what the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps is and, and where the Quds Force fits into that. Sure. So, so the Quds Force is, uh, as you mentioned, it is a, um, an arm of the IRGC. They are very much involved uh, outside of Iran and um, in terms of supporting its proxy terror friends, such as Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and uh, the Houthis. Um, the IRGC itself is a branch of Iran's military. Um, its overall job and principal objective is to fuel and fund uh, terrorism. Uh, so where we stand legally in Canada today, because, as you mentioned, the Quds Force, its external operations branch, is a list of terrorist entity, but the IRGC is not. Um, in Canada today, nobody can just send weapons or missiles over to Iran uh, because um, the, of the uh, Quds Force listing. However, perversely, because the IRGC is not listed, somebody could transfer money over to the IRGC today, and they could purchase missiles and weapons, and, and that would just be fine under Canadian law. So that's a loophole that needs to be closed because the IRGC is a terrorist organization and they are a real security threat uh, to Canadians and uh, many people around the world. Well, in enlisting the Quds Force, but not the IRGC, is, is Canada then making a distinction that doesn't really actually exist? Uh, yes, and, th- and this has happened in the past. Uh, many years ago, um, Hezbollah, as another terrorist organization, Canada had listed the militant wing of Hezbollah, but, um, but not the so-called humanitarian wings of Hezbollah, when in fact it's the same individuals and uh, they have the same nefarious aims of engaging in terrorism. It's exactly the same with the IRGC. The IRGC uh, is, has been involved in, in many, many forms of terror, and in fact, is, uh, is currently suppressing the Iranian people during the Iranian protests. So the Americans listed the entirety of the IRGC uh, in 2019. Uh, Canada has voted in favor of doing so, and um, we don't understand why it's taken this long, but what today the neighbors did was we put the Canadian government on notice. We said uh, this has taken far too long. Uh, Canadians deserve an answer, and uh, we are asking that within the next 30 days um, you uh, fulfill the will of Parliament and you list the IRGC. Uh, and if they fail to meet that deadline, what, what kind of recourse might be available? Well, uh, we're, we're all options are on the table. Um, at the end of the day, uh, 
not just the Jewish community, but the Iranian Canadian community and all Canadians that care about public safety issues and terrorism in Canada. Uh, the neighborhood is, is willing to, uh, to do whatever is necessary. Um, to enforce um, the security, and, and there is precedent for this. The neighborhood uh, in the past with, with Hezbollah, as I mentioned earlier, in 2002, it was due to um, um, the neighborhood's um, uh, pressure uh, that uh, we forced the Canadian government to lift the entirety of Hezbollah. Uh, we're willing to go down those lines again, and again, all everything's on the table um, legally within our means to ensure that uh, Canadians are protected from an active terrorist group that threatens Canadian interests. You know, it's interesting, though, because I, I think people tend to think of terrorist organizations as, as stateless kind of entities, that there are governments or there have been governments that do support terror organizations. But, I mean, aren't, aren't we talking essentially then about a, a branch of the Iranian government? Is, is that different from, say, a, a stateless organization like, like Hezbollah or Hamas or al-Qaeda? Yeah, and it, it, is, it is quite different. It's a different way of thinking of things. But uh, back in 2012, when Canada closed down the Iranian embassy um, for public safety concerns because uh, the Iranian embassies, not just in Canada, but around the world, have been used for spying activities against Iranian dissidents, um, targeting uh, the Jewish community um, in different parts of the world. Um, IRGC um, individuals have been uh, placed inside of some of these embassies. So we know about um, some of their involvement in, uh, for example, uh, the, um, the Jewish Community Center attack in Argentina in 1994. Um, this is a, a branch, uh, you're right, of, of the military, but they're embedded in, in sometimes into governments, and it, it just makes it all the more dangerous an organization. It's, it's a terrorist organization with blood on its hands, and Canada needs to do the right thing, stand up for human rights, and immediately rush the IRGC. All right, more at uh, BenetBreath.ca. Mike Gallegos, we'll see how the government responds in the next, uh, well, I guess the next 30 days. Appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. Thank you very much, Rob. All right, all the best. That is Michael Boston. He is uh, Chief Executive Officer with BenetBreath Canada. Uh, was on hand for this press conference today, alongside uh, other uh, organizations representing uh, Iranians as well. Uh, so speaking with one voice here today and urging the federal government to to take a firmer stance as it pertains to the IRGC. We're kind of halfway there and recognizing part of the IRGC, the Quds Force, as a terrorist organization. We need to go further and we need to recognize uh, the will of Parliament. And this motion that was passed way back in June of 2018... Well, according to the Associated Press, and this has been rumored for a while here, uh, but the Associated Press reporting that a person with direct knowledge of the plans has confirmed that women's national team players representing the U.S. and Canada, women's national team players will compete in a three-on-three event as part of the NHL's All-Star Game festivities coming up in a couple of weeks. Now, that person spoke in the condition of anonymity because the NHL isn't scheduled to announce its plans until later this week. But like I say, it's been something that's been rumored for a little while here that the NHL was going to uh, try to give women's hockey more of a platform through the NHL All-Star Weekend. And this comes at a time when obviously there's been a lot of conversation around women's hockey and where it goes from here. And the demise of professional women's hockey in Canada and how we ensure that that there is that kind of a platform uh, for these elite athletes. And where does it come from? Then? Where, is, where do we get to uh, a new professional league? Something uh, for, for these players. So there is a lot of talk around this, whether it's the NHL that needs to take a role or some other entity. Now, the Professional Women's Hockey Players Association has been formed, the, PW, uh, the PWHPA, uh, to represent women's uh, hockey athletes and and to be a voice for giving them this platform and getting to a situation where there is a viable professional league for women hockey players to play in well joining us to talk a bit more about uh, where things stand and and how we get to that next step very pleased to welcome in the program uh, certainly one of the big names in women's hockey in this country jana hefford is working as an operations consultant for the professional women's hockey player association uh, she's a hall of famer herself of course uh, won multiple medals at the winter olympics and the iw uh, the i women's world hockey championships or that gold medal winning goal in 2002 also won championships in the national women's hockey league and the canadian women's hockey league Jana, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, 
Lisa, thanks for having me. What's your sense of, of kind of where we're at here? I mean, we, we've got the NHL now set to make this announcement about a pretty big uh, showcase at, at the All-Star Weekend. There, there, there's increasing attention, I think, uh, around the need to address this. Where are we at, do you think? You know, I, I think we're still in a time of uncertainty in many ways. Um, but looking back on, you know, back in the spring of 2019 when the CWHL folded, uh, it was certainly, you know, a devastating day for women's hockey. But it also opened a door to create some different conversation around the game and really bring awareness to the way the game gets supported and, and what needs to happen to for these athletes to um, really be given an opportunity to succeed. So, you know, I think that we're making a lot of progress with our group. We have 175 members, um, all the top players in the world from Team Canada and Team USA. And uh, we've had a lot of success this season through our Dream Gap Tour and really trying to drive awareness to this. And I think we're seeing progress with what we're doing with the NHL clubs and, you know, with a, an announcement with the NHL that, you know, they will support the women's game on a big level at All-Star Weekend. I th- you know, I think that shows that progress is being made. Yeah, it's interesting because, of course, Canada, U.S. and women's hockey is such a, a fierce, at times, bitter rivalry. But, you know, there's a greater good here. There's a greater cause here. Uh, and, and so to see, you know, all of you coming together, I mean, it, it speaks to, to I think, why this, you know, this, this is such an important issue. So what, what's the expectation then for the, uh, the, the PWHPA? What, what do you see the association's role as here? Well, you know, I, I think, as you said, the idea that we're bringing all of these players together, we have one united voice that the sole purpose is to push the sport forward. It's not about any one individual. Uh, we represent the biggest stars in the game to the person who is a full-time teacher and plays hockey because they still have a passion for it but can still play at an elite level. Um, so, you know, that's what this is so impactful because... It's all about the sport, and these women are committed and determined to leave the game in a better place than they found it. And we've talked a lot over the last while, and certainly over this past weekend, where we had a showcase event around pioneers, and and how long are we going to continue to keep calling these women's hockey players pioneers? Uh, The ones before me were considered pioneers, and my Mm -hmm. generation was pioneers, and now these women are pioneers. And, you know, we want to get to the point where we're just, the women are athletes, and they're female hockey players, and they're treated as professional athletes. Now, there, there is still a league that exists in the U.S., then obviously the NWHL, and it's kind of been the NHL's almost like an excuse, I guess. Say, well, we're not going to get involved because there is a women's professional hockey league that still exists. Maybe there was some hope after the, the Canadian league f- folded that maybe the NWHL could, could expand, but what, what's, what's happened since then? Well, you know, the players that are part of our association, we've made it very clear what we believe, um, you know, a professional athlete um, and a professional league should look like. And that doesn't exist for women's hockey, and it's never existed for women's hockey. Um, So we don't believe, we don't want to be in the same position we were, Mm -hmm. um, where we're in a league where players are barely being compensated. There isn't adequate medical coverage. Um, There isn't proper travel, proper rest, recovery from from games, the infrastructure and the resources to actually be able to market a game properly and create a brand. And, you know, we feel like the women are are succeeding uh, not because of what they're provided, but, um, you know, they're succeeding because the game is good. But if we want to move it forward and, and these athletes should really have an opportunity to try to be on that professional level, they need all these other pieces, the infrastructure, the resources, a lot of the things I mentioned, it's, it's not solely about, you know, salary and, and making professional money. That's, that's actually the furthest thing from the case. It's, it's really about that infrastructure that gives us a platform to succeed. So where does the NHL fit in, in, in getting to a solution, do you think? Well, you know, history shows us that the only professional women's sports leagues that have been successful have been aligned with established men's leagues and um, for obvious reasons they have infrastructure in place they have the knowledge the experience um, it can easily be integrated into what they do so you know in our view having those those resources that are already in place allows for that easy integration um, we, we don't know exactly what that looks like but we do believe that you know, for us to succeed and our best opportunity to succeed would be to align us with an established league and what would that alignment look like or, or what, what kind of a benefit then can, can the NHL bring? 
Well, they bring all those, uh, the resources, the infrastructure I've just described. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we were able to in some way work with them, they, they have marketing departments in place, they have ticketing departments, they have facilities, they have uh, medical teams, um, you know, it just goes on and on. And um, th- these are the things that women's hockey has never had. Um, the idea that our, our athletes have to practice at, you know, 10, 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night in community arenas, that's, that's not professional sport to us. Uh, the fact that they have to fly across the country and play, you know, a few hours after landing, that's not professional hockey to us. Um, so, you know, we're just not giving the women an opportunity to succeed. And it goes much beyond that, just hockey. But we believe by creating a, a professional women's hockey league, we're going to be able to keep girls in sport longer. We know that sport develops leaders and businesses and communities. Um, you know, it, it's good for society to show women that can be in these roles. And, and hopefully the next young girl, you know, I grew up wanting, hoping I could play in the NHL and that became incredibly unrealistic. But, you know, we want the next young girl who puts on a pair of skates to actually believe that she could have a future in the sport if she loved it. It's interesting because, you know, certainly those, those gold medal games, you know, just massive, massive audiences, uh, people watching women's hockey. So, I mean, you know, there's... There's an audience there. I know the, mm-hmm. the question comes up in this conversation. Well, is, is there a demand, right? And I mean, you know, on the one hand, mm-hmm. it seems there is. What, what do you say? Well, this is, you know, it all comes back to the fact that there needs to be an investment made in the sport. And yes, right now, every four years, we have tens of millions of people that watch that gold medal game. Um, and we have the exact same players that play in our association. Uh, but they aren't able to perform because we don't have that platform that, that gives us the visibility, that gives us the television uh, coverage, that, um, you know, gives us the marketing power to be able to let people know where we're playing and when it's happening and who these players are. Um, and that's what happens at the Olympic Games. They're on a platform where people can see them and, and get to know them. And there's excitement around that. But if we can find out a way to create a platform for them, like, you know, on certainly a yearly, if not day-to-day basis, that's where, you know, somewhere down the road, we'll see if this is viable. But at this point, we've never been given the opportunity to succeed on that level. Right. So maybe not necessarily, uh, at least initially, uh, a league that mirrors the NHL in terms of the number of teams or, or the kind of schedule. But in, in what way might uh, a women's league mirror the, the NHL? Well, you know, I, I think uh, we always talk about, you know, what a professional league, how many teams might exist. And, you know, very, I would say, consensus goes back to that sort of original six format. And not that teams have to be in those markets, but that um, that's a good number for us in terms of keeping the quality of play really high, um, allows teams to be ge- geographically um, close to cut down on, on some some costs around travel and um, so, you know, absolutely, it will not look exactly like the NHL, um, but there's things we can learn from the NHL and, and what they've done. And, and certainly, you know, again, we want the best opportunity to succeed, not, not for it to look exactly like the NHL. Right. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like the NHL is going to announce this week that there will be this three-on-three showcase as part of the All-Star Game weekend, which seems like a step in the right direction. I mean, what do you read into that? Is this the NHL sort of slowly getting to this point you like them to get to, or is this, you know, them kind of throwing women's hockey a bone in a way? Well, the NHL has been supportive of the women's game for a long time. Um, you know, this isn't the first year women will appear at the All-Star Game. Obviously, last year, Kendall had uh, a great performance at the All-Star Game. The year before, there was women there, and they were part of the skills comp and demoing the skills. And so, you know, I, I think the involvement seems to have grown a little bit each year. And, um, you know, I think that's a positive sign that there is progress. And, I mean, at the end of the day, if the NHL were to do something bigger on women's hockey, it's a huge investment they have to make. And, um, you know, I, I believe they'll make the decision when they're in a point where they believe it's the right time. And, and until then, we'll continue to do what we do and, and we'll continue to try to, you know, work with them and build on the relationships we have and learn from them. And, and I think that that's how we move the sport forward. Yeah, and it's interesting, too. I mean, already, you know, some of the, the corporate support uh, that the Players Association has, right? I mean, in, in terms of bringing different kinds of sponsorship to the table, bringing different audiences to the table, growing the overall brand. I mean, you know, th- those are the terms I think the NHL likes to think in. Um, so I, there, there's certainly opportunities, I think, for the NHL in all of this, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, there's 
uh, all sports are they're showing quite a bit of inclusion and diversity pieces. And at the end of the day, um, if you are not developing your female fan base, you're you're turning your back on fifty percent of the population. And um, you know, through helping develop the women's league, um, ultimately they're developing their fan base because just uh, you know, you know, myself, I love watching the NHL. I play women's hockey, but I'm a hockey fan, and and I think that's what you find. And as you said, every four years we have millions, tens of millions of people watching gold medal games between Canada and the USA. So people find the women's game entertaining, uh, but we just have to find a way to put on a platform where they get to know it a little better and they have a better chance to see it on a more consistent basis. All right. Well, we'll see what uh, the uh, coming weeks and months bring us on this front. More at pwhpa.com. Jaina, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, all the best. That is Jana Heffert, operations consultant with the Professional Women's Hockey Player Association, uh, former player, big-time player herself. Might have been Hall of Famer. The record speaks for itself. Gold medal, gold medal winning goal in 2002. Helped lead Canada to four straight Olympic gold medals. As well as World uh, Women's Hockey Championships. Won titles in the National Women's Hockey League. Won titles in the Canadian Women's Hockey League was uh, Order of Hockey uh, in Canada recipient last year and uh, was for a time the interim commissioner of the Canadian Women's Hockey League before it folded, selected for induction into the Hockey Hall of Fame in June of 2018. So her resume speaks for itself. And I mean, that, that's obviously the kind of athlete uh, that this kind of a league could give that profile to. So the Tim Hortons brand... It's had a rough go as of late. And in fact, it's been having a rough go really for a couple of years. This is from April of 2018. New survey suggests Tim Hortons has fallen out of favor with Canadians, plummeting 25 points and dropping more than 40 spots in an annual corporate reputation ranking. Tim Hortons dropped from fourth place to 50th place in a ranking of uh, 100 companies Canadians most admire. So that's where they were at, right? And that speaks to the heights of, of their corporate reputation. I, I don't think things have gotten any better over the last couple of years. They might have even got worse. You know, sales are lagging. There was a whole controversy uh, around uh, franchise owners kind of rebelling at, at how they were being treated by the company. Even little things like changing the lids. This weird Timbit cereal. Their attempt last week to capitalize on Harry and Meghan moving to Canada. That kind of blew up in their face. So it almost seems like, you know, they just can't make a right move. Uh, Even the Beyond Meat, which the bandwagon everyone seems to be jumping on. Tim Hortons couldn't really make that work. Uh, They've been uh, they've announced they're pulling Beyond Meat products from their menus, except in Ontario and B.C., uh, and they face some pretty stiff competition. Interestingly, they're poaching from that competition. Tim Hortons has hired a senior marketing executive from one of its biggest rivals. Uh, Restaurant Brands International, the parent company, announced that Hope Bagazi had left as director of marketing for McDonald's Restaurants of Canada to become Tim Hortons' new chief marketing officer. So maybe getting a little desperate over at uh, Restaurant Brands International. But joining us to talk about Tim Hortons and uh, some of the struggles for this once iconic Canadian brand. I'm very pleased to welcome to the program Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvain, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Yeah, nice, nice talking to you. You know, it's interesting, too, and I know you tweeted about this Maple Leaf Foods story today. We were just talking about it a few minutes ago. I mean, uh, we'll get into the Tim Hortons thing with just some general thoughts on the kind of curveball Michael McCain has thrown everybody here and what, what this all means for, for Maple Leaf Foods and their corporate branding. Uh, I suspect that uh, Maple Leaf Foods uh, had a busy day today explaining to uh, to clients Suppliers as well. Uh, it's highly unusual to see uh, the CEO of a publicly traded company uh, send out a message like that. Uh, I mean, it is, it is absolutely courageous, and, and that's the exact word I used uh, earlier this morning. But I, I wasn't surprised by the reaction. Uh, the boycott Maple Leaf uh, handle. Uh, also, uh, I'm not sure about their share price. The share price actually dropped early uh, in the morning. Uh, I mean, those are the kinds of things you should expect when you make a, st- a political statement like that. But like I said, I mean, I actually have met 
uh, Michael McCain personally 12 years ago in the aftermath of the Listeria outbreak. And uh, the message that we saw last night on Twitter was pretty consistent with the man I met 12 years ago. He actually allows his emotions to dictate a lot of things he believes and says. Yeah. Well, we'll see how that all plays out. Let's talk about Tim Hortons. And as I say, I mean, you know, there, there have been issues around the Tim Hortons brand for a few years now. What what seemed to, to mark the, the start of their problems? Can we pinpoint it to, to anything? Well, I think you have to go back to the creation of RBI itself when uh, Burger King Popeyes, uh, supported, funded by 3G Capital uh, out of Brazil, decided to uh, to buy Tim Hortons in Canada and relocate uh, their headquarters to, to Canada. And that's how RBI, Restaurant Brands International, was born. That was about five, six years ago, and uh, that's when they literally gutted uh, Tim Hortons HQ. Most people that I knew who were working there at the time no longer works there. Most of the people are not even Canadian, uh, in fact. Uh, a lot of people are Brazilian, American, uh, and of course there's nothing wrong with that. It's just you can tell that the, the, the Tim Hortons legacy may have been forgotten along the way, which is why I would say that the brand itself is going through an identity crisis. It really is. And it just seems, you know, everything they try, um, it, it almost, you know, seems to, it certainly doesn't improve things. It's like they're, they're spinning their wheels, or a lot of these seem to, to kind of backfire, blow up in their face. So it's almost as though Canadians are, feels like we're looking for a reason to get mad at them these days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I would say- I mean, being number one is uh, adds pressure. I mean, everything you do, it will be criticized. Uh, yeah. It's part of the game. I get it. But the challenge with Tim Hortons is that they've actually made a series of really key mistakes, uh, simple mistakes. And you, you went through the depressing list of mistakes just a few minutes ago. Um, I mean, starting with the Beyond Meat play last summer, less than six, years, six months ago, I never understood that uh, that particular move. Uh, proteins aren't part of their game. I mean, right. that's not what they do. And uh, but still, they ended up confusing the marketplace. And of course, after that uh, came the lids. The lids uh, weren't necessarily um, popular, and they actually spent thousands and thousands of dollars and over two years of development to come up with these lids. And the rollout, the rollout, the rim to win campaign was a disaster last year because they failed to recognize that the paper based campaign became uh, out of step with, uh, with consumers that are looking for sustainable solutions. So they're, they now are looking at uh, digitizing the campaign itself, which is about time, really, after 33 years. And, of course, uh, last week was a disastrous week with two main things, the Timbit cereals and <laughs> the Megan Harry tweet. That was a classic. Yeah, and if anyone missed it, they, they tweeted out that uh, they were going to give ha- um, Harry and Megan free coffee for life if they moved to Canada. <laughs> Right. It's funny because Popeyes over the weekend, which is actually owned by RBI, yeah. did the same thing, but it was actually much more efficient with Family Feud Canada. Yes. Uh, yes. Ev, Eve uh, Dupuy out of Manitoba decided to make chicken Popeyes' favorite yes. meal or favorite food, which of course we all know it's finished, but the Popeyes chain jumped on the occasion and offered Ev Dupuis, the contestant, $10,000 worth of free chicken. Which was brilliant. Uh, it was brilliant. That was brilliant. Yeah. That was brilliant. <laughs> it's owned by RBI. It's yes, part of the same, same family. Exactly. But on the other hand, Tim Hortons just screwed it up. The, the breakfast cereal, too, the idea of Timbit cereal. And when I saw that, I mean, it's like, who's who's in charge over there? There's just, you know, there, there's, <laughs> as you say, there's, there's a real identity crisis i i think right now that that just it seems so out of left field for this company 
My 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 guess is is this. I actually do think that Tim Hortons is run by by executives, highly qualified executives that actually fly at thirty thousand feet, and they look at the big picture without really appreciating the legacy, the brand itself, what it means to Canadians. The Timbits cereal uh, decision, I think, has a lot to do with the fact that there are more synergies between retail and service nowadays. If you walk into a grocery store, you'll see more products uh, carrying a brand that you would find in food service. And I'm thinking of, for example, Chalet Swiss, Saint Hubert. I mean, there are there are a, a greater number of brands you find in a grocery store that you didn't find before, and I suspect that's kind of what they wanted to do. They wanted to slap the Timbit uh, brand onto a product in partnership with Post to carry that brand into retail at some point beyond just coffee, and I think that's what they were thinking, but they didn't think about the health aspect of the product. They didn't think about the ridiculousness of how the brand could apply to a cereal, for example, in the morning. And who eats cereal now? It's actually out of fashion. Most kids just don't eat cereal. It's too complicated. Well, I, I will give them credit for one thing, that uh, the commercial they did with Wayne Gretzky and the Tim Hortons autograph, I, I thought that was very well done. And that sort of speaks to maybe where they used to really resonate with Canadians, that sort of Canadiana aspect. So maybe they haven't completely lost sight of, of who and what they are. So they're shaking things up at the top. They've, they've stolen a pretty well-known um, executive from McDonald's. So at least they seem to recognize that a, that a change in direction is warranted here. Yeah, the one, the, the one announcement that really got uh, me scratching my head is Machetto's departure, uh, they actually announced on December 27th, of all days, in the middle of the holiday season, when nobody watches the news, Machado, the CEO of Tim Hortons, actually announced that he was leaving the company in March. I wasn't surprised by the change. I was surprised by the timing, because, of course, Machado has been under a lot of pressure. He's Brazilian descent, so... His ties with Trigi Capital has always been uh, undermining his leadership as CEO of Tim Hortons. The guy earns almost $50 million and is worth about $27 million. So very influential in the industry and uh, announced that he was leaving the company in March and nobody knows who's going to replace him. But I, I do think it really points to one thing, is that Tim Hortons is seeing growth outside of Canada. And they're probably going to be looking for some expertise uh, of someone who is who's capable of globalizing a brand. Because Tim Hortons really is starting to get some successes in China, for example. They have over 20 stores now. They're getting some successes there, but they need more work. In Canada, there's just no more room for growth. Eight cups out of every ten served outside people's homes is served by Tim Hortons right now. That's close to a monopoly. Yeah, they still got a lot of strength, so we shouldn't write them off just yet. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out in 2020 for them. Uh, so, Van, we'll leave it there. Always appreciate your insight on uh, these matters, and thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Not a problem. Take care. All right, take care. Sylvan Charlebois, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. 403-974-8255 is a number here, 974-TALK. Getting a lot of texts about Tim Hortons and kind of why people have soured on them. Uh, look, and, you know, as Sylvan said, they're, they're still in a relatively strong position. They got a lot of advantages, but they've definitely had their stumbles in the last few years. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.